0: Good to see you all. I'd like to welcome you to our Sunday School class, and you can turn to the book of Ezekiel. We'll pray, and then we'll get started. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the time we can gather uh, for a few minutes before our regular worship service. Uh, Gather to study your word. I pray, Lord, that as we look into the scriptures this morning, we would have a better understanding of uh, what's going on in the book of Ezekiel in particular. And I pray that you would help us to um, catch a vision, as it were, of your glory as we take up and read um, your scriptures. So we pray for your help now, we pray it in Christ's name, amen. So today uh, in our class, as you know, we're, we've been going through surveying books of the Bible, and today we get to cover Ezekiel, and Michael's preaching today, and so I get to do Sunday school, but I'm also excited because Ezekiel was a difficult book for, uh, for some of the guys to tackle, but I think it's an exciting book. And so I was very pleased that I got a chance to fill in and teach through Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is one of the major prophets, and it's one that is filled with historically specific detail. There's a lot of history, a lot of chronology in the book of Ezekiel. It's not all poetry and prophecy like some of the minor prophets. You can read stories and events and things like that. It's filled also with unique and vivid imagery, imagery that we see in visions Imagery that we see in in the prophecies themselves as the prophet gives these uh, vivid depictions of both judgment and Israel's sin and what God's going to do. Um, There are sweeping pronouncements of judgment and very shocking depictions of Israel's sin. Um, Ezekiel is one of the most explicit books in the Bible. Um, Michael's preaching through Hosea right now and we've seen the metaphor used frequently in Hosea of idolatry. False worship being likened unto sexual immorality, adultery, um, unfaithfulness to um, um, a, a husband, God being the faithful husband. So you will find uh, in several different chapters some very shocking, vivid, um, seeming, you know, you can read some of these chapters and think, this is in the Bible. Wow. Um, shocking depictions of sin in the book of Ezekiel. But there's also some incredible promises of future blessing, restoration. And some of these promises of grace, promises of salvation, fundamentally shape the theology of the New Testament. Um, Some of the most well-known promises of good news coming for God's people come from the book of Ezekiel. So this is an important book. Um, All of them are important, but Ezekiel um, has some important theological information for us. There's 48 chapters in Ezekiel, which means there's far too much content for me to give you a proper survey. There's no way I can do that this morning. I'm not going to try uh, so our aim in these lessons is to really just try to give you a helpful overview um, and a summary. So think of it this way. Um, when I was in high school, nobody had cell phones really. And if you did have a cell phone, there's no such thing as GPS or Google Maps on that cell phone. So if you wanted to get to somebody's house, they'd draw you a map on a napkin or something like that. Or maybe if like, you were like me, you had an old Kansas Atlas you know, underneath the seat in your pickup truck. That's what I had with a couple pages um, earmarked in there. Um, That's how you got around. So think of this overview as a little bit like me trying to draw you out a map on a piece of paper. Um, When we're done, hopefully you'll have a sense of direction. Hopefully you'll have an idea of the starting point and the end end point and the key turns that need to get you from point A to point B. Um, Maybe some important details along the way. But as you know, if you've driven around the state of Kansas or other places, reading a map is nothing compared to actually driving that trip yourself. And looking out the window and seeing the scenery. So I hope that you will be motivated um, after this um, to take up and read. I hope this lesson leaves you wanting more. That's the goal. Because I can't possibly give you everything that's in 48 chapters. So let's dive in though and and let me try to sketch you out this map on our napkin, so to speak, for the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel was a priest, which means that by birth that was his job. He was uh, from the tribe of Levi. But he was also trained to be a priest. This would have been part of his upbringing, part of his formal education, part of his professional training. He was a priest. We see this in chapter 1, verse 3, that he is a priest, the son of Buzi. But we see that he's in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chebar Canal. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So Ezekiel, as we find here in chapter 1, was an exile in Babylon. He wasn't in Israel He wasn't in Judah. He wasn't at the temple in Jerusalem fulfilling his priestly duties. He was a captive. He had been taken away. He was in exile with many others from Israel. Um, Based on Ezekiel's careful dating methods, we can see that his ministry there in Babylon spanned about 23 years. Just a little bit of historical background. When the Babylonian Empire rose to power, you know that they swept through the whole region, including Judah, Israel, the kingdom in the north, had already been taken captive by the Assyrians. They had already been wiped out. So Israel in the north was gone. Judah in the south had hung on a little bit longer. But they too, because of their sin, were going to be judged. And God raised up the Babylonians to do that. And when they swept through the first time, when Judah was overrun by the Babylonian army, they took some of their population away into exile. Not all of them, but some of them. Especially some of the nobles, some of the influencers, Um, the logic of the day is if we take away all their leaders and all their wealthy and all their nobles, it'll just be this uneducated rabble left and they'll be easier to govern. And we'll take the ones that have something to offer to society, we'll take them back and put them in a different different place and have them contribute to the development of the empire. Um, So you'll know that people like Daniel was taken captive into Babylon. He was part of that first deportation as well, as was three brothers named, or three young men named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You might know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We meet them in the book of Daniel. So they were part of that first deportation, which happened in 597 B.C. And Ezekiel tells us in chapter 1 that this first vision he sees, the thing that causes him to put uh, pen to paper or quill to parchment uh, back then, uh, was this vision, and it was record- recorded in the fifth year of this exile he dates everything carefully he says in the 30th year in the fourth month on the fifth day of the month as I was among the exiles by the Chebar Canal that's in Babylon the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God on the fifth day of the month it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin and he says that's when the word of the Lord came upon him so a lot of detail here that's who's writing that's where he's writing from that's uh, when he is writing what this means is that Ezekiel's message would have been primarily heard not by residents of Jerusalem and Judah, it would have been primarily heard by these exiles in Babylon. So Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah. If you were here last week, Jeremiah was prophesying in Jerusalem to those who were left after that first exile. So Jeremiah is over here in Jerusalem, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the wet further west, ministering to them, and then Further to the east in Babylon, simultaneously, Ezekiel is prophesying and fulfilling his ministry. So Ezekiel wrote, like all the prophets, um, to uh, to understand his book. You have to understand that he wrote in light of uh, the covenants. And he communicated important new revelation from God. So you'll see him commentating on the people's behavior, their violation of the law, but also giving them new information. So you have to understand the backdrop is the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant... The law was sort of like the Constitution for Israel. God had entered into this relationship with them at Mount Sinai, after bringing them out of Egypt, it says, "This is going to be the governing document for our relationship. This is how, how I want to be worshipped. this is how I want um, society and government and worship and everything to operate." That was their governing document, that law, the Mosaic covenant. But they did not keep that covenant. Um, And that's the theme of the prophets, is the people violated the law. They broke uh, faith with God, in a sense. And so, because of their persistence in sin, God brings judgment. For many years, Israel and Judah had both persisted in idolatry and sin, and so now they're reaping the consequences for their action. And among Ezekiel's messages will be that Jerusalem itself is not just going to be defeated and exiles taken away, it's actually going to be destroyed, fully destroyed and everyone taken away and the temple itself um, flattened. Um, But there are other covenants that Ezekiel writes sort of in light of. Not just the Mosaic covenant and the law with its attendant blessings and cursings. Blessings if you obey, cursings if you disobey. But he also writes in view of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember before Moses there is a previous promise wasn't there? An unconditional promise. Not one that depended on their obedience, but one that depended on God's faithfulness. The Abrahamic covenant assured them that God would not cast them off forever. He was going to bless them and bless the whole world through them. And he had promised to curse those who cursed them. So there's judgment not just for Israel, or for the Jews, even for residents of Judah. But there's also going to be cursings in the book of Ezekiel for those who come against Israel. That fills that a big part of this book. God had promised in that Abrahamic covenant to give them the land of Canaan. He had later also made a covenant with David and promised that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever and reign in power. So it's against the backdrop of God's promises, these promises of land and blessing and a king and a kingdom. It's against these promises as well as the curse of the law that Ezekiel writes, and it's against this backdrop that his visions and his prophecies sort of unfold for us. And with Ezekiel's writings comes the promise of a new covenant, a new covenant that would be greater than the covenant with Moses, the covenant they could not keep, a covenant that would replace that old covenant and bring with it the solution for their problem. The solution for their problem, the reason they were going into judgment and captivity was they had a heart issue. They had dead hearts, hearts that didn't love God, that didn't worship God, that didn't keep his law, and so God will promise to give them a new heart, as we'll see here in a moment. So you can break the book of Ezekiel down structure-wise really into three parts. Part one is chapter 1 through 24, which prophesies judgment on Jerusalem. Jerusalem there being the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah and really representative of the whole. So there's judgment on Jerusalem in chapter 1 through 24. Part two In chapters 25 through 32 is judgment on the surrounding nations, Edom, Ammon, Moab, the uh, the Philistines, Tyre and Sidon, um, uh, the Egyptians. There are all of these judgments rendered not just for Jerusalem but for the surrounding nations. That's part two. And then in part three, in chapter 33 through the end of the book, chapter 48, we find a change in emphasis And we find hope of blessing and restoration. So you have bad news for Jerusalem, bad news for the nations, and then good news for Jerusalem and the world. So that's sort of the the structure of the book. But there's some themes that tie these three sections together, themes that unify them. Central to this book is the theme of the glory of God. If you read Ezekiel looking for the glory of God, tracing the glory of God, um, reading everything in light of the glory of God, that's how it all fits together and starts to make sense. Um, you see the glory of God manifested in in these visions, as we'll look at in just a moment, Um, especially three specific visions where Ezekiel sees literally the glory of God. So it's not hard to figure out that that's a key theme. It's all throughout the book where Ezekiel's literally seeing and trying to describe God's own glory. But we also see the glory of God in what what, um, scholars call the recognition formula. Just as I was reading Ezekiel this last Week, this is something that just seemed to jump off the page again and again and again, and it's not only in Ezekiel. Um, you find it many other places in Scripture as well, but especially in Ezekiel, over 70 times we find this recognition formula, something along the lines of, um, and then they will know that I am the Lord. Then all shall see that I am the Lord. Then the nations will know that I am God. Again and again and again, God says, the reason why I'm doing this, whether it be judgment or salvation, judgment on on Jerusalem or judgment on the nations, salvation for Jerusalem, all of it, God says over and over and over again, so that all will know that I am the Lord, so they will see that I am the Lord, then all will know. Again and again and again, this recognition formula is used. And this reveals that everything God does he does for his glory. It also reveals our problem, doesn't it? Apparently, not everyone knows that God, Yahweh, the Lord, that he is God. Apparently, we don't all know what his character is like, how holy he is, how just he is, but also how merciful and gracious he is. That needs to be displayed to the world. And so you see man's problem, needing to know, and God's motive, wanting to manifest and display his glory all throughout the pages of Ezekiel. I think we also see this in a sense because of another repeated phrase all throughout the book. If you read Ezekiel, you will find that Ezekiel is referred to by God. He's addressed as son of man. Son of man, write this. Son of man, I want you to say this. Son of man, understand this, that then I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. God is always referring to Ezekiel as the son of man. 90 plus times he uses this phrase. So these are, anytime something's repeated, we should probably pay attention, right? So 70 times, the recognition formula. 90 times, son of man. The only other place that this um, title is used in this formal sense is in the book of Daniel. It's used two times, in the book of Daniel. Um, And it's used in the book of Ezekiel, I think, specifically to contrast human weakness, human smallness, human frailty with the glory of God. The glory of God who's being revealed as holy and majestic and awesome. You are son of man, human, dust. You know, our days are short. Our knowledge is limited. Our power is limited. God's is not. And so as Ezekiel is seeing this vision of glory and being shown all these things that God is going to do for his glory, he's always being reminded that he's not God and he's not glorious. And even as one who gets to see these things and gets the privilege of speaking this to to all of these people, he's reminded he is a son of man. Now the same title is going to be used in Daniel, and I don't want to steal too much thunder from Daniel, which is next week. But it's used in Daniel to describe the coming glorious Messiah. If you know, in Daniel 7, he sees a vision, one like a son of man coming in the clouds with glory, and to him is given this eternal kingdom so that all will serve him. So Jesus would use this title in the New Testament throughout his earthly ministry. If you were with us in our study through Mark a couple years ago, you'll remember that. Jesus calls himself the son of man. Why is he doing that? Jesus is identifying himself with humanity, saying he's taken on flesh to represent mankind. Jesus became a son of man. But Jesus also identifies himself with the coming Messiah, the glorious Messiah of Daniel, that Jesus is the son of man who is going to receive that kingdom, who comes not from earth but comes from heaven heaven with glory. So Jesus will use that. So there's, there's a whole topic of theology we could get to there. But when you hear that phrase, son of man, son of man, son of man in Ezekiel, know that it's being meant to show how small and humble Ezekiel is. Not disparaging him, but reminding him of his place because God is glorious. And then that, that term son of man in, in the book of Daniel is shown to be something that describes the Messiah and Jesus will later use it to describe himself. So it kind of develops throughout history. Um, But that's important for us to understand. If we're going to read Ezekiel, we need to see Son of Man uh, and see that repetition. So let's kind of walk through the content here of this book. I want to look at three visions, uh, three visions that really help us see the truth of Ezekiel unfolding. The first is what we find in chapters 1 through 3. Ezekiel has a vision of God the king, a vision of God's glory, a vision of the throne. And this is, is really Ezekiel's commission. So with the temple far away and the people not in the land, it might be easy to think that, wow, God is really far away, especially for someone like Ezekiel who can't even do his job right because he's not back home at the temple. The temple is where God's glory was. The temple housed the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, and God's glory was manifested there. But in this vision, as God's presence is manifested in a foreign place on the banks of the river in Babylon, it shows Ezekiel that God, in a sense... Has gone into exile with them. So in chapter 1, verses 4 through 25, Ezekiel sees this vision. We don't have time to read all of it. Um, Hopefully, you've read it before, but he sees these creatures and he sees, he hears loud noises. There's bright lights. There's these creatures that he is like searching for words to even try to describe. Um, And and he sees wheels and eyes and wings and and smoke and fire and brightness. And it's this shocking vision. And then more than just the creatures, he sees in verse 26, he says, above the expanse over their heads, over these creatures, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness of a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. What Ezekiel sees there on the banks of the river, he tries to describe But good luck trying to actually draw or illustrate this vision. I mean, you can even see that Ezekiel himself doesn't have words to describe what he's seeing. He's saying, as it were, the appearance of something like or the likeness of his waist. He won't even say it's a waist or it's this. He's saying it's like this because I don't even have words to describe what I'm seeing. He's searching for that. So you can't even describe it with words. You definitely can't draw this in a picture for the kids to color in Sunday school. And you can read through the whole chapter and see why. This shows us that God is holy. God's glory is holy. Holy, we always think of holiness as simply being without sin, which God definitely is, separate from sin, morally pure, no trace of evil or error. That's true. But holiness also has this idea of separateness and otherness. God is completely separate and other and unique, different than anything in the world. And Ezekiel really searches for words to describe that. That this God, his glory, he is not like us. He's utterly unique. And so he stretches the bounds of language and human imagination trying to describe what he sees. But the imagery here reveals to us a God who's glorious. We see the brightness and the light. A God who is powerful. As you read the description there, there's undeniable power, a God who is holy, a God who is all-seeing with these eyes facing every direction, everywhere present you see the movement of the throne, and he's ruling from the throne, he's powerful, he's in charge, even though Babylon has come through and, and is going to destroy Jerusalem, even though all these nations are popping up and at war, God's on his throne, and he always has been, and he always will be, and Ezekiel sees this. And what's amazing is that Ezekiel doesn't go looking for this vision. God initiates it. God has not forgotten his people. He's not limited to the temple. He's not confined to Jerusalem. He's God over all. And so Ezekiel falls in humility and fear and worship in verse 28, something Israel had collectively failed to do. But then this vision climaxes with words. God speaks. This glorious God speaks to him. And Ezekiel is commissioned to speak for God to the people. He's told in chapter 3, verse 7, that the people won't listen. But nevertheless, Ezekiel will be God's prophet and speak his words after him. So in chapter 2, verse 1, the Holy Spirit fills Ezekiel with strength, picks him up, puts him on his feet, and God commissions him to speak. And this is really cool. As you read it, it sort of follows a pattern we find in Scripture. Um, you see this with Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, or even uh, at the burning bush uh, with Moses seeing the glory of God there on the mountain, or with Paul on the road to Damascus. We see a pattern here that God shows himself in his glory, people are freaked out. God speaks to his servant and then sends them with a message. That happens with all those situations. So Ezekiel sits overwhelmed for seven days after seeing this message. He's stunned. Can't even speak. Uh, The message that God gives him is one of judgment. Babylon will come and totally destroy what remained in Jerusalem. And although this is a bitter message, Ezekiel describes in chapter three, verse one through three, being given a scroll to eat and that tastes sweet that the word of God is good even when it proclaims judgment and then Ezekiel will model this message of judgment in sort of a performance art like this street theater almost uh, multiple times throughout the book we don't have time to look at all of these but but um, Ezekiel will build a little mini model of Jerusalem like with a, a brick and he'll lay on his side for 390 days and then lay on his other side for 40 days representing judgment for Israel and Judah um, he's told by God to make bread out of lentils, which is like cheap bread uh, for poor people. That's, you don't have you know, a big crop of wheat. You just have you know, some beans that you kind of scrape together. And he cooks it over dung, which is symbolizing siege conditions. When there's an army around your city, you can't go out in the fields and harvest. You can't go out and even collect firewood. So you're baking bread with what you have over what you have. And so um, Ezekiel is pretty horrified this, by this, and so God tells him he can use cow dung which is a little cleaner, It's just processed grass. But it still symbolized a great humility in siege conditions. He tells him to ration his water. Everyone would have seen him doing this and would have said, what are you doing and what does this mean? And he would have opportunity to explain the prophecy. He was told to pack his bags and crawl through the wall like someone who's fleeing, someone who's going into exile. He was told to shave off all his hair with a sword and take one-third of it and burn it, one-third of it and strike it with the sword, and one-third of it and scatter it, kind of symbolizing what's going to happen to the remaining people in Judah. His wife dies in chapter 24, and he's told not to mourn because the loss of a spouse doesn't even compare to the grief that would come from the destruction of the temple and the erasure of a nation from its place. Um, So he's even told not to mourn when his wife dies. And people would have said, why are you not tearing your clothes? Why is there no dust on your head? Why aren't you fasting? You're not mourning even though your wife just died. And he would have had opportunity to explain his message. So Ezekiel does all of these all of these things, and it corresponds to what he hears in this first vision, God, um, a vision of God's glory and God telling him to judge. Uh, but there's a second vision that Ezekiel has. You can flip over to chapter 8, and this is a vision of the glory of God again, but this time it's a vision of God's glory not just being manifested in the, in the heavenly throne room. It's a vision of God's glory departing from the temple. So part of Ezekiel's message was to condemn the nation for their sin. They're an unfaithful bride. We see that in chapter 16 and 23, um, including some some of the most shocking language in the whole Bible. Um, He had condemned their leadership. In chapter 34, he condemns the leaders for being bad shepherds who feed on the flock instead of feeding the flock. Jesus will pick up um, some of that language in the New Testament. He sees the people scattered like sheep without a shepherd and fulfills the promise of Ezekiel saying, I will be their shepherd and feed them. Um, God had condemned even the people themselves because they gather to hear the word in chapter 33. But God says, you're just like people who like to hear a pretty song or you like to see a play. You're, you're listening to the preaching of the word as simply entertainment and you're not actually changing. And that would preach. We could take some time on that. Um, but so the people, the leaders, uh, the nation, all of them have been condemned. And so because of this, in chapter 722, the Lord promises, I will turn my face away from my people, um, The same message that Jeremiah was preaching, I will show them my back and not my face. So because the people had turned away from God, God was going to turn away from them. So we see this sad progression. Look in chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah sees a vision of God's glory in the temple. So he's seeing it uh, manifested there in the temple. But God also shows him in the temple, idolatry going on. The holy place of God being profaned by idolatry. So then he sees the glory of God moving from above the ark where it was in the Holy of Holies, moving from that central chamber of the temple to the threshold. In chapter 9, verse 3, we see this. It says, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested, you know, that's over the ark of the covenant in the inner chamber, to the threshold of the house. This is significant. God's glory has moved from the holy place. He's standing now at the door ready to leave and then we see in chapter 10 verses 18 through 19 you can look over there then this is after seeing more uh, judgment and sin it says then the glory of the lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from earth before my eyes as they went out and the wheels beside them and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the lord And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So now he's moved from the threshold of the house to the gate. And the gate of the house of the Lord actually was connected to the gate of the city. Um, So he's right there um, at the city gate. So he's left the holy place. Now he's left the temple proper. And he's getting ready to leave the city itself. And then in chapter 11, we see the glory of God departing the city of Jerusalem. Chapter 11, verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. That's the Mount of Olives, by the way. And the spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the spirit of God into Chaldea, into the the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me And I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. The people had turned their back on God. And so God withdraws his presence from them. This must have been shocking and heartbreaking and terrifying for Ezekiel to see. As one who served God, as one who had seen the glory of the Lord, as one who loved the temple and was called to facilitate worship there to see God leave. This is the reversal of what happened when Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord and they sacrificed and they prayed and the whole uh, nation was gathered. It says the glory of the Lord filled it. There was this cloud of glory and all the people drew back and they worshiped. You can find this in Chronicles and Kings. It's this amazing scene. That's now being undone because of their sin. God had withdrawn. This is the ultimate loss and the ultimate judgment and it's just, it's appropriate because of their sin. But then there's a third vision. This is where we see the good news, and it's a vision of God's return. And with the return of God's glory, we find the restoration of the people, the restoration of the temple, the restoration of the land, the restoration of the kingdom. So it gets really, really good after this. In chapter 33, verse 21, word finally arrives to Ezekiel there in exile that Jerusalem has fallen. The messengers come and say, it's happened. It's been knocked down. The temple's been destroyed. Everyone's been taken into exile All God's prophecies of judgment have come true. And then the tone shifts to blessing and restoration. He gives them hope, saying, listen, God's not done with you. Because of his promise to Abraham, he's not done with you. So we see in chapter um, 36 an amazing promise. After all this bad news, after God's glory departing, after death and destruction and horrible siege conditions that had been suffered, we get to chapter 36. And the promise of a new heart. We can skip all the way to twenty-two. There's so much more I want to read here, but we've got to move quickly. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. There's God's glory again. My holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. In which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. That's the recognition formula. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people. And I will be your God. And there's more. We could keep on going through that. But consider this amazing promise the people will be restored. And God himself will dwell in them. This God who had departed the temple, departed from Jerusalem proper, departed from the city and gone out to the Mount of Olives, this God will dwell in them and he will restore relationship. I will be your God, you'll be my people, I will cleanse your sin, I'll take away your stony heart, give you a heart of flesh, put my spirit in you. This is good news and it's a promise of a new covenant. This is different than anything that had ever happened before. This was something new, and God promised that he would do it. In the very next chapter, chapter 37, we see an amazing illustration of this. We don't have time to go through it, but, but Isaiah, or, uh, not Isaiah, Ezekiel sees this vision of a valley full of dead bones. And the implication is it's the children of Israel who had sinned and experienced judgment, and they were dead. But it's referring to their spiritual condition as well, dead hearts. And he says, Son of man, can these bones live? Like, can they really get up and live again? They're not just dead bodies. It's bones. And not just bones, but dry bones. It's been dead for a long time. There's no hope of resuscitation here. It would be a miracle. He tells Ezekiel to preach, and as he preaches the word, the spirit clothes these bones with flesh. And then you have bodies. And then God puts his spirit in them and awakens them to life an amazing metaphor a picture of what God is going to do in saving his people there's hope of resurrection here but even more than that hope of spiritual life that God gives through the preaching of his word and by the power of his spirit it's amazing vision that he sees God doing a vision of what God is going to do according to his promise we see at the end of chapter 37 this hope of a new covenant includes a Davidic king look in verse 21 it says in verse 21 Kind of skipping to the middle of the verse there. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them all around and bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation. No more Israel and Judah. No more split. He's going to unify them. Make them one nation on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols And their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Verse 24 My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Not the bad shepherds, a good shepherd. The Lord will be their shepherd. His servant David will reign and rule over them. And it will be, as he says, a covenant of peace. In verse 28, Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Remember, God's glory had left the sanctuary. He says, I'm going to put my dwelling place in their midst forever. And then we get to chapter 40. There's so much more here. But in chapter 40 through 43, we hear this prophecy of the restoration of the temple. Solomon's temple, in all of its glory, this this massive temple had been destroyed. And when the exiles came back, they did try to rebuild the temple, but the old men who remembered the old temple wept when they saw it because they said, this is so small and so unimpressive compared to the glory of the old temple. But that little temple that got rebuilt was not according to these specifications. In chapter 40 through 43, there are specifications given. And these are architectural, architectural instructions. This is a blueprint for a future temple that is glorious, even more glorious than Solomon's old temple. And he tells them how to build it. He's saying, listen, I am going to restore what was lost. And in chapter 43, we see a final vision of glory. Look in chapter 43, verses 1 through 5. After building this temple, it says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. So picture yourself if you can imagine this, you're in Jerusalem and you're looking to the east to the Mount of Olives where the glory of God had departed out to and you see the glory of God returning. The glory of God of Israel was coming from the east and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory and the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Chebar Canal, and I fell on my face, as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is amazing that God is going to return into his temple. There's echoes of this when Jesus comes from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem through the eastern gate, on um on on palm sunday and people are worshiping him and singing hosanna and jesus is the manifestation of the glory of the lord but he was killed but what did jesus say destroy this temple in three days i'll raise it up again so this has not been fulfilled in its entirety yet there's still a day coming when the fullness of god's glory will return in the person of christ and he will take his rightful place in the midst of his people. But Ezekiel sees this vision of the glory of the Lord returning to this renewed and restored and rebuilt temple. And we ask the question, why? Why would God offer this renewed hope to such unfaithful people? As you read through this book and you see how horrible their sin is, even committing idolatry and immorality in the temple building itself, why would God do this? Well, as we've seen, above all else, God promises to do this, to change his people, to restore them, to rebuild everything for his own name's sake as we saw in chapter 36 he says it is not for your sake O israel that i'm about to do this but for the sake of my name more than 70 times we find this recognition formula that then they will know that i am the lord then they will see my glory One commentator writes this, he says, Ezekiel's oracles, these prophecies, constantly conclude with the recognition formula to demonstrate to his audience that Yahweh is the true power in the world. It's not Babylon, it's not Egypt, it's not Assyria, it's Yahweh. He's the true power in the world who appears to him in Babylon, who destroys the Jerusalem temple, who brings the people of Judah into captivity, who brings down the mighty nations of the world and who will restore the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jerusalem temple, and creation at large. It is this glorious God, this magnificent, faithful, just, glorious king, who will win out in the end. I love how the book ends. Um, If you flip over to chapter 48, we see after this vision of God's glory returning that the land is restored. Uh, So the temple is restored. God is there. And you see the land is restored. This river flows out from the temple, and everything it touches, it brings life. It brings renewal, and and it even turns the sea into fresh water when it finally gets there. So this river gives life. and You see a renewed earth. You see a renewed people, and the land is divided up, and they're living under the reign of God's righteous king, whom we know to be Jesus from the New Testament. And you see all these things being renewed, and, and the earth is made new. And then you get to the way the book ends. The final phrase, of the final verse, in the final chapter, it says, And the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Really, the book of Ezekiel is kind of like the Old Testament version of Revelation. It gives us all this bad news about judgment that's going to come, but all this good news about how God wins in the end. His king will be exalted over all. He will bring renewal and restoration and blessing. And his glory will be displayed. And his people will be made holy and right. And he will be their God and they will be his people. And they will dwell together forever in peace. This is the happy ending for the people of Israel. And we see in Revelation, it's the happy ending for us all. All of us who have faith in Christ can look forward to God's perfect manifestation of his glory and grace and the renewal of all things. God's glory departed because of sin, but it returns. And there's hope, there's hope. So I hope that you will take up and read the book of Ezekiel because I think it's fascinating. As you read it, look for that recognition formula. That will be such... Um, A perfect cure, I think, for our culture's obsession with self-esteem and and for us to be the center of the universe and for thinking that God somehow owes us something when God says, listen, this is all about me and my glory. What a privilege that we get to experience his grace as a part of his plan to manifest that glory. Um, As you read the book of Ezekiel, you'll see good news about what it really looks like to be restored to God, a new heart, his spirit put in us, sins forgiven. And the ultimate joy, the ultimate privilege that any of us could ever experience, and that's to dwell in the presence of God, to enjoy his presence, to know him. And we can have hope of that one day because of Christ. You are dismissed.